0: Well, here is basically in a nutshell, uh, where we're at. Uh, and I think that part of the reason why, uh, I, I don't want anybody to be intimidated by my lectern. This is not as, ex- as expensive as it looks. So you just kind of look right on past that. But when we're looking at our, our culture and the cities that you are either uh, pastoring in or serving in, maybe the Rangers or youth or, or whatever the case is, you know as well as I do that it's becoming increasingly difficult, right? Because the, the, the culture that we're in is not bent toward us. It actually looks like it's bending away from us. And I was talking with Isaiah um, on the way up, and uh, we, I was, we were just commenting about how when we started uh, our theological education, for me it was in the early 90s, I was very well prepared to minister in a world that no longer exists. And so it's like we're on this constant journey to learn and understand. And I'm telling you, there are times I just don't get it. And in fact, I was taking a class recently, maybe within the last year, and uh, it was called Culture Crash by uh, Earl Krebs. And um, I was debating whether taking that class or a counseling class because I'm the world's worst counselor. I can I can give you my counseling technique in less than ten seconds. Wow. Listen, have you ever heard of Emerge? And uh, and I and I actually will go online at that moment and get them a contact number. And so I thought, you know, what? I should probably take a counseling course. And then my my kids at the time were sixteen, fourteen, twelve, and ten. They're like, Dad, take the culture course, and because uh, they know so much more. And that can be really discouraging as a church leader. Um, and because you're here, my assumption is is that we're all in here, church leaders, or aspiring uh, to be that. But one of the things that I want to point out, and this is really going to be the basis of what we're talking about today. The early church was in, I would suggest, very similar times as, as we're in. The early church thrived. In an environment, oh, uh, for the recording, this is against the flow, um, Derek Boivin. Um So the the early church context was v- in Rome is very similar to what we have today. They weren't planting churches and had the amazing success they had in the Bible Belt. The, the, there weren't laws that protected them. There wasn't freedom of speech to or, or freedom to. There was freedom of religion, but not exclusivity. It was a challenging environment, just like we're starting to experience. What I'm starting to believe, and I don't know how far I would go on this, but increasingly, America and Western culture is becoming a post-Christian culture. We don't have the benefit of the doubt. There was a time, I I remember when I first was in Bible college, and we were talking about um, housing allowance for pastors. And I remember thinking, because uh, I'm from Canada originally, and we had that same benefit up up in Canada, and trying to figure out why we would get a tax break for housing. And, you know, when I was in high school, we talked about that as we, we were taking a, this law course, and they were talking about tax law, and one of the things they, they were referring to was how clergy has housing benefits sanctioned by the government. And the reason why the secular teacher told us uh, we enjoy those benefits. Was that churches add benefit to society? Therefore, the uh, the government want to encourage people to go into the ministry. How times have changed! That was I was in high school in the late '80s, and I started my Bible college education. I think in '89, '90. How far things have changed! And so, there's a couple of things that we're facing that I think is kind of going to uh, let us know that how the direction things are going. Go ahead, Isaiah. Um, I just wanted to point out a few things. Now, you're aware of what this picture represents, right? Uh, Joy Behar was on The View and she was talking about P- Mike Pence saying that he wants to hear from the Lord and she pictured him as being crazy. Just recently, just this week, um, apparently she apologized in a private conversation but refused to pol- apologize to Christians in general, right? And, and a lot of us are kind of like, well, she should, you know, she should be apologizing to everybody. I overheard my second born saying to my youngest, my daughter, who was angry at my third born for doing something. And she was upset because he wouldn't apologize. And so my third born or my second born said, why do you care if he apologizes if if he's not sorry? Right? And so, but this whole scenario is demand an apology for whatever reason because of a slight against Christians. So you see that in the entertainment. Go ahead, Isaiah, the next one. In Canada, this is from, uh, Employment Canada, uh, where I'm from. There, every year, uh, in the summertime, the government would give grants to nonprofit organizations, including churches, to hire students to do whatever it is they want to do. So, if you're in a church, you could hire students to run your, your youth program, or your kids program, or if you wanted to clean up a stream or whatever. The government would actually give grants because the theory is, is that students had debt for school but they owe the government because it's the government that gives the loan right just like here in america well the liberal government of canada this year is under a whole lot of stress because they put a checkbox on the online application form and the paper form the checkbox says i'm not sure if i put it here um okay to be eligible applicants uh, we'll have to attest that both this is from the government of Canada. We'll have to attest that both job, both the job and the organization's core mandate respect to individual human rights in Canada, including values underlying the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms as well as other rights. These include reproductive rights, the right to be free from discrimination on the basis of sex, religion, race, national, ethnic origin, color, mental or physical disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity or expression. In order for a church to participate in a government program, they have to sign off that says, I agree with all of these practices. So basically, an evangelical church, a Pentecostal church, would have to say, I'm okay with abortion in order to get government funds. And again, that is blowing up in the government's face because now that's one particular party who happens to be in power. That's their platform. But that's another example of how our culture is bending away from the church. And so how do we respond? How do we continue to be the church in such, a, um, such an environment? You remember that, right? We have to go into that one. The, uh, the pizza owner who, whether or not she was going to bake a pizza uh, for a gay wedding. And of course, on and on, there's other expressions. And it went right to the courts. So, you have churches that are, uh, and, and believers who are being forced into speech that they don't agree with in order to accommodate a bending away culture. And finally, here in the United States as well, um, increasingly, the uh, church benefits of, of uh, uh, people tithing and getting an income tax return, they're continually coming under assault of whether or not that that's, a, that's appropriate. Should the government be giving any kind of tax break to people who give to the church? In fact, I don't, uh, as, as a senior pastor, my main concern to be truthful is not that the church is going to lose that tax benefit. My main concern is that as a church that preaches the whole gospel, you as a business owner will find your businesses picketed because you attend my church based on my speech or based on my sermon or whatever. And so you're going to have to make a decision whether or not you're going to go to a church and give. And when that's going across the, um, the congregation, who knows what kind of impact that would have. And so having these types of things happening, it can become quite scary to be committed to the gospel as it's been given to us by the Lord. And so what I wanted to do in this seminar today was just kind of start to unpack those things. The Apostle Paul, in his ministry, if you look through the ministry, I think that there's two cities that he ministered in that were unique compared to the, all the others. And what it is, when he was in Ephesus and Philippi, he was persecuted, not by the church who was troubled by what he was saying, and not by uh, Jews who were troubled by what he said, but bona fide pagans, people who had no Judaic, Judeo-Christian background, how did he respond within that secular culture to see massive growth of the church? And I don't have it up here, but I do uh, recommend uh, John Wooten's book. Um, uh, what, what is it called? Yeah, message uh, Messaging, right? Excellent, excellent book. And um, if you have not read that, I know I saw that they're selling them downstairs. And I just, I, I really want to let you know that it is an excellent book. So what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at this uh, these similarities between uh, trying to engage a culture as the church trying to engage the culture in a culture that is very similar uh, to our own. Um, there was a lot of similarities uh, between Rome and now military superpower as well as government sanctioned. what well, we would say uh, government sanctioned. Um, atrocities. there was abortion and pedophilia and all those things were a part of that experience and, and we see that today. Yet the church thrived. And one of the things that I think uh, we can equally be alarmed at or we should be alarmed at is this um, this idea that the church needs to take on the persona of culture warrior that we that our theology is how to battle against the culture as it's changing because I really believe it's a losing battle. What I would suggest is that we create a theology of engagement. How do we engage a culture that is bending away from us? Even in the sense, of, if, a, if you have a child who is entering their teenage years and are, you're growing apart relationally, as a parent, you have a choice to either go after them or try to engage them right when you're when your kids are 16 17 years old they're finally old enough to date and they come home at 10 30 or 11 o'clock from uh, you know going to the show or whatever as a parent we have a choice to be in bed and angry because they're 10 minutes late or do we stay up so we can ask them how it went right a theology of engagement or, or a theology of attack so so does that make sense that's kind of kind of where we're going turn if you brought your Bibles or if you have your phones or your iPads or whatever or you just want to write it down Act, we're going we're gonna to be doing these in reverse order, okay? We're going to look at Ephesus first in Acts 19, Acts nineteen twenty-three 23 to 41. So let me uh, just read that real quick just so that we can uh, be on the same page, all right? About that time, serious trouble de- uh, developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines to the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. In other words, he employed a lot of people. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, will lose its influence, and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped around the province of Asia, will all around the w- and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige at, at, at this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" and soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, and uh, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, also sent a message uh, to him, begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting, some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation and he motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they began, they started shouting again and kept it up for two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Keep going to 41. At this, the mayor was able to quiet down enough to speak. Citizens of Ephesus, he said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. And since this is an undeniable fact, you should stay calm and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and not spoken against our goddess. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session and the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges." And if if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in legal assemblies. So I am afraid that we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. And then he dismissed them and they dispersed. All right, so in um, Paul's mission activity in the book of Acts uh, leads him into a culture that is neither sympathetic nor engaged in what Paul is saying. He is saying that it, here, by implication, that Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, has power, that he is the one who is the creator of the universe and, and, and all that's going on. But one of the things that's really interesting is that Paul could not lean on the Torah like Peter could. In his environment, he had to engage this culture who had no spiritual or theological framework to understand what Paul was uh, was saying, because he's ministering to Gentiles. Like these are absolute pagans. He's going in deeper into the Roman Empire on his on his eventual journey uh, toward Rome and throughout the uh, roman empire we see that there's different headwinds but here in acts 19 is one of a uh, it's unique among two in that the opposition was coming from people who did not believe already that there was a messiah coming it wasn't convincing them that this is the one that was promised this is an entirely different uh, theological uh, framework. And in his preaching, there's these miracles. You've got people turning to, uh, to Christ. All these things are happening. And as you saw, you've got these, uh, these artisans who are making idols for worship, uh, losing their job. People are burning their magic books in other parts. And it is just everything is changing. And so what do they do? They come against Paul, they come against his companions and say that these people are a public menace. His preaching is persuasive because of the uh, uh, the Holy Spirit's work. They're getting rid of the, it's, it's true power. And so we have this major, major uprising and fortunes are being lost. So, out of this account in Acts 19, we're going to start, and there's, there's three aspects of this theology of engagement that I think directly impact how the church can do ministry, uh, whether it be uh, your local ministry in the church or the church in general. There's a successful uh, ministry in Ephesus. So, the people come against them, there's rioting, they come before the courts, etc. And so, here's the three observations. First of all, number one, when you look at what how Paul responded, he didn't attack his audience. The first thing that he doesn't do, and if you if you look at verse 37, I'll go there just to remind you of it. In verse 37, you have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from the temple and have not, listen to this, have not spoken against the goddess. One of the things that we see is that Paul, as he's advancing his ministry, he's Defended by the town clerk. Paul has not attacked I, I, I remembering several years ago, I, I used to live in the Detroit area, it was about twenty minutes from Dearborn, Michigan. And I'm gonna tell you something, living that close to Dearborn, I know what you're thinking, the food was incredible. Like it was like there was Arabic restaurants everywhere. There was there was um the culture was there. If you go down Dearborn, down Main Street in Dearborn, it is a beautiful walk to go late in the evening. It's it's wonderful. But you may remember uh, a gentleman named uh, Terry Jones. Does anybody remember that name, Terry Jones? He was the guy who was going to, I think he was going to burn the Koran on live TV. Do you remember that? The whole nation was in uproar. I remember Fox News was, was reporting on it, and it, it was absolutely everywhere. But one of the things that we notice about Paul, and understand that, that Ephesus was a successful ministry plant for Paul. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Ephesus is singled out as one of the great churches. Now, there was a warning for Ephesus. But at the time, Paul was extremely effective. And one of the things that Paul didn't do was directly attack the goddess Artemis. And and I'm thinking about that in terms of our our relationships with our, our community, whatever. I wonder how many times as church leaders, we're greatly tempted to be sacrilegious toward other people's religion. Paul did not direct, I I really believe that if Paul walked the earth right now and if he lived here in Ohio, that he would not be directly attacking Allah. What I do think he would be doing is that he would be coming against the teaching of Islam in a subversive way. He would be living his life. He would be dealing one-on-one. He would be getting into conversation. He would be earning a living, he'd be adding to the flourishing of the city. Like, I could actually see the Apostle Paul living in Dearborn, Michigan, making his tents, living in a community where there are, and and listen, I'm going to tell you something, this whole session is going to be a little, it's going to cause us to step back a little bit, but I want to understand that I think Paul's success, one of the aspects of his theology of engagement, of not directly attacking Artemis, worked in his favor. Nobody could legitimately accuse him of being disrespectful. Let me ask you a question. When, when you uh, – I was showing you those pictures. When you heard, uh, for example, the government of Canada saying that you have to reject some very basic ethical principles in order to engage, fully engage in society, even though you might, living there, be a taxpayer or a citizen. How did that make you feel? Probably, probably very uncomfortable. How, how dare they do that, Right? I would submit that people who believe differently can feel the same way. When we're trying to earn a hearing for Christ, we're trying to hear, earn a, a hearing for Christ, I'm not sure that our missions department would, Adrian, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, they probably don't tell you to set up in the public square and rail against the God that is worshipped in that city. Would you agree with that? Look, look, I just don't see that being really effective. We live in an increasingly multicultural world. And and, and before you might think, well, does that mean um, we uphold pluralism? No, no, not at all. All I'm saying is that the town square is not the place to do it. That we can live a life and we can be very effective by truly being lights in a dark culture. I I know of of a couple of missionaries when I was living in the area of, of Dearborn, who they engage the culture not by attacking Muhammad and, and not by going around and accusing Muhammad, Muhammad of being a pedophile, which you've heard, I'm sure. You know what he did? He taught English as a second language. And what would happen is, is he would spend his time teaching English as, as a second language, and his wife, does anybody know the Habibis? Some people might, some people might not. What she would do is she would just be there, and she would in, create incredible relationships with Muslim women who over time were able to confide in her. And some people even came to know the Lord. And so when you look at Paul, Paul did not directly attack uh, the local religion. He lived his life. He led people to Christ. In fact, you will see when he was in Athens on Mars Hill, that he was very complimentary to the local religion. He didn't say, he added... He said, the one God that you don't know, that's the God I want to tell you about. And when you plant that seed, it becomes pervasive. So the first thing I want to point out to you, just on on based on this observation, that, that our evangelistic efforts in post-Christian America, um, we need to carefully avoid launching direct attacks on the beliefs of others. The most practical approach consists of undermining prevailing beliefs, but not attacking them. When somebody comes and I, I just, my my uncle passed away in the fall and I had a great opportunity. I spoke with a Muslim woman in the waiting room. Her husband was dying of cancer as my uncle was dying of cancer. And we probably talked, we spoke together probably about 45 minutes to an hour of just talking about our beliefs. She was talking about how she loved being Muslim. And so I was asking questions about that. And she was pointing out that for example, how she dresses, she deeply believes in modesty. She deeply believes that uh, her part of her responsibility is not leading other people to lust and as I was talking about her everywhere I was everywhere in her conversation, I was able to find bridges of contact, particularly with this Muslim person because she be- Muslims, especially if they move from the middle East, they believe that America. It, their spiritual condition, they believe what they believe based on what they see on TV and in movies. They, they believe that Christians are fast and furious. They, they, those are the, that's what they believe about us. And so when I was able to say, boy, you know, I really agree with you that morality is so important. I try to teach my daughter, you, you know, to uh, dress with modesty and all that kind of stuff. She was amazed. I would have loved to uh, lead her to the Lord. But I was able to ask her if I could if I could pray with her. I was able to kind of clear up some misconceptions she had about Christianity and how Jesus was uh, born of the Spirit. And, and like I said, I wish I could have taken it right to the end. I couldn't. But one of the things that I was thankful for was at the end of the day, um, she counted me as a friend and it was happy. I, I sat with a with a uh, a Jewish rabbi in Youngstown, and we sat together for about two hours. And I was talking to him about the Old Testament. I, I set up the appointment. I wanted to kind of have a dialogue with him. And at the end of that conversation, I sent him a, a Starbucks gift card and, and whatever, and he called me on the phone, and and uh, he called me a mensch. First, I was pretty offended. And then he said, no, no, no a mensch is a good thing. That's a good Gentile. And, uh, and and you know, there was a bridge that was made. And so I just wanted to point out to you that Paul's success did not include being a culture warrior and, and yelling at the world. Secondly, Expect that the gospel is going to impact society and the economy. In verse 27, this is what he says. I'm, I'm sure you're going to watch. Oh, time's going, isn't it? Uh, verse 27. I'm concerned that the temple of the great, did I start too late? Yeah. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess, worshipped throughout the province in all Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her prestige. And before that, he's talking about how their wealth derives from, um, worshiping Artemis. That's what they're providing for. And one of the things that I want to say is that the modern church, in order to be effective in a post-Christian world, has to be really good. And this is very hard. I, in fact, I don't think, I, I'm saying that this is in the text, working really hard to include it in our ministry, but it's harder than it looks. Some people do it really well. Is understanding that the ministry... Ought to add to the flourishing of the economy and ought to add to the flourishing of the community around. I really believe that it is important that our church grounds are beautiful so that when people come by, and particularly if you're like in Warren at Warren First, where our church is, we live in an er- we, our is an area of town that is really becoming run down over the last twenty years since the steel collapse. It's awful. But one of the things we really try to make sure that we do is is we do lot cleanups around Easter time. We have our our crew outside always killing dandelions, doing that kind of stuff. That's one aspect. Another things that we we try to do is impact and pray for people who are in the community and and uh, uh, working and trying not to make it like. What I'm doing is important and what you're doing is less important. I want you to succeed at work so you can tithe more because, you know, a tithe on $50,000 a year is greater than a tithe on $30,000 a year. So, but if that's my basis for wanting our community to thrive, I'm completely missing the boat. And so one of the things that I try to do even in our church services is point out from as much as we can, Hey, listen, what you're doing tomorrow is very important. What we're teaching today, I just did a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and what I'm starting to do this month is how do we apply the fruit of the Spirit to marriage? And how is that going to impact our communities? So this Sunday, I can Isaiah, I'm preaching this week about uh, joy in the home, right? This book here by, uh, um, by Flourishing uh, Communities. The idea is that when we are... Um, When we're doing our things, the local economy should get better because of things added. But in addition to that, in addition to that, I really want to see, like we saw in the 1800s under Finney, that when revival hits a city and when a church is doing its ministry, that places of business that earn their income from vice start struggling financially, like the churches struggle financially. I'd like to see there be a switch there. That less people are going to the porn shops. That less people are going to the bar because they don't need that. They don't want that. I, I really believe that as we are driving along the street, and, and, and I do a lot of thinking and reading and stuff about the image of God, is that when people become closer to Jesus and Jesus is making a difference in their life, what happens is, is they become socially upwardly mobile. Uh, think about it. If you have a guy who is walking the street, and he's addicted to drugs or alcohol, plays the lottery and smokes, if you just get that person saved and discipled, you're doubling their income, their spendable income. And then when we're able to do that, you have to understand that not only will the economy change, but lives will change. And I think that's what we're seeing here with these silversmiths coming together and saying, our whole livelihood is at risk. And one of the things that I'm praying for more boldness on in my, li- in, in my life is more of a boldness to stand against the things in our culture, in our communities, that are damaging lives. I, I want to speak more to that. I-, I remember having a conversation when they, uh, there was a new owner of the uh, bowling alley uh, next door to the church, and they-, they filed for a liquor license. I didn't want a liquor license there. I eventually lost that battle, but one thing I was able to do was sit down with, that, with, with the uh, bowling alley owner and kind of express to him our concern that our city does not need another bar. That we're, we're the ones that are cleaning up the mess. And when you look at what Paul is doing, I think that we, can, we should expect that a Holy Spirit empowered preaching of the gospel is going to impact our local economy as the church. We have to learn how to engage people who are, who are, uh, business owners or property owners or whatever in our city so that their lives can com- become better and that those who are thriving on the destructions of lies do worse. And I don't really feel bad about saying that. I mean I, I it bothers me. It bothers me that my former church, less than 200 feet away, was a porn shop. In fact, in fact, it should have never been there because our church was there first and there were bylaws at some point in the church's history somebody signed off on that. In and I believe that what they wanted to do is they wanted to, to be good neighbors and and so I'm just I'm suggesting that if we look here and we're trying to engage in the culture we should have a ministry that we expect is going to impact our local economy it's going to impact our society in a great way but don't be surprised when they come against us don't be surprised when um, those types of endeavors cause us to be sued or cause our uh, our churches to False accusations. You know, the gospel, even though we're preaching it, um, I, I'm thinking of Mike Tyson. I just read an article. His former mansion in Southington, Ohio, was just purchased by a church, and uh, they're, they're building a church in his mansion. So I'm thinking of Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson said, great philosopher uh, slash theologian, said everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the face. Right? And I think that as a church, we ought to expect that our message and our lifestyle is going to impact our society. But they're going to fight back. And this is going to continue to develop. So they fight back. And then we know that there's this, in 18 to 30, 28 to 34, there's this mob that comes up. Okay? So this, so they're doing their thing. They're impacting society. The mob goes crazy. Not the mob, like the mafia, but like the, the crowd's. They go crazy, and, and Paul, his, his first inclination when they all get pulled into the arena is Paul stands up to address the crowd. Do you remember when I read it? What did Paul's, like his real friends, what did they do? Yeah, pull them away. And I was kind of wondering, why would they do that? They wouldn't have killed them. They didn't kill the other guys. I think it's useless to argue against a mob. Like I have four kids, okay? They classify as a mob, okay? So when we're driving along and they're all arguing, I have to raise my voice in order to be heard, right? Anybody have four kids? Okay. So when you, ra- how many you have? I had three boys. That counts as a crowd. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I have a girl. So yeah. So you raise your voice to get their attention. Do they quiet down? It gets louder. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking, okay, do, do we have mobs nowadays? Yes. Where? Oh, my word, yes. Yeah. Hey, listen, you've got comment sections, right? You read an article about this church, whatever, and am I the only one that's a sucker for punishment and goes to the comment section to see if anybody agrees with my perspective? Yeah, you guys do that too, right? And everybody, and all of a sudden, everybody, if you go in there and say, oh, that, oh man. That's a 1-800 number. I'm going to decline that. So what happens is, is there's an article. People go on that uh, article, and they comment, and we we're kind of laughing about this on the way up. Half of the people we argue with are Russian bots, right? And so we're like praying our friends. I'm, you know, I'm trying to win this person to Christ and on, uh, you know, on Facebook, and it's not going anywhere. Here's what, I, here's what I do know. As a Christian, when I go through those comment sections, and I read the believer who's trying to, you, you know. Uh, and if you do this, hey, I, I don't mean any criticism. God bless you for trying to engage. All I'm saying is, is that it's more effective to do it one-on-one with the people that you don't do know, rather than trying to engage a mob. Because when we go online, we start to, and this is where John Wooten's book on uh, on messaging comes in so great. I have ne- listen. I have never ever won a debate on Facebook. I've lost friends. I've never won, every now and then, so I, listen, I have resorted, instead of trying to witness on comment sections, I have, I have uh, resorted uh, to just making pithy comments and then checking to see if there's any responses. Somebody, I, I, there, recently I just made a little comment. It was just a joke. It was a Christian article. And I can't remember what I, oh, I remember what it was. It was, uh, I just basically corrected someone's grammar. And, um, and so the person asked if it was hard, if it hurt to be so stupid. And um, I responded, well, sometimes. And I just kind of left it there. And I kept going back to see if anybody responded. But I didn't catch the attention of any of the Russian bots. So they just left me alone. But here's what I do know is that when I've read comments where people have outlaid a beautiful road to salvation, oh oh, oh my, it's embarrassing. It's good. What they said was good and it preaches well and it elicits a whole bunch of amens from fellow believers, but it doesn't accomplish anything. And I think, I just think that if we 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 succumb to the same pressure that we can be very effective as a keyboard warrior, but the person who we live with or the person who lives across the street or we work with, they're the ones who are primed. And this is what I've noticed in life. You know how the internet is really upset about this and Twitter's going crazy over that? If you talk to a real human being, they haven't even heard of it. And what happens is is we spend way too much time trying to engage the mob mentality and normal people who are worried about their kids getting addicted to drugs and they're working too many hours, whatever, they are still ripe to receive the gospel and we're missing it because we're too busy arguing about pizza shops and whether or not a jeweler should sell a ring to a gay couple who wants to get married. And and that's something you're going to have to deal with between you and the Lord. I don't know what I would do in that situation either, but I can say that, um, that's not happening everywhere. In fact, um, one of my kids came home from school and was telling me was telling me that uh, there is a kid in their class who is experimenting with transgenderism. And and I thought, oh, I, I wonder. I guess it is happening in small town Cortland, Ohio. And I said, so is is everybody congratulating them and 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 saying that's a wonderful thing? He said, what? He says, no. And that's all he said. And I thought, you know what? I need to turn off the internet. I need to turn off the internet because those aren't real people. The people that I engage with, the people that I know, are looking to better their lives in many different ways. They're busy going from baseball practice to track and all those types of things. And I'm missing the gospel moments that are happening every single day because I'm trying to win the mob as opposed to win my neighbor. And so when you look at what's, what's happening there, and I'm, I'm starting to go fast because I'm starting to feel a little pressured by the time. But uh, avoid the mob, internet comment section debates, Facebook debates. It, it just doesn't seem uh, to work. So this third aspect of a theology engagement within a hostile culture, a culture that's hostile or, or resistant to the, to the gospel, is how do we have discourse? How do we interact with people? Without getting caught up. Because what happens is when we start to get angry, we lose. Because they've created this stereotype that we are very happy to engage with. And sometimes we say things that really do us a great disservice. And and so, you know, every comment that you make on Fox News... Every single one. All someone has to do is click on your handle, and they can see every comment that you've ever made. So it's pretty tough to uh, witness on one, and then uh, go back to uh, um, witness on one, and then ridicule in another. So I just I want to say. So before we go to Acts sixteen, was there any any comments that uh, any thoughts on that on any of those? Yeah, Adrian. Nothing had changed. Right. But the media had shifted. Yeah. So it really was, was an interesting way of, of seeing that dichotomy because yeah. you're, you're getting one picture and you come back. Oh. And it's, they have their agenda, but that's it's not real life. The funniest line, the funniest line in Acts 19, and some didn't even know why they were there. That's right. That's a lot of that. There, yeah. There's a, I think it's a Chinese proverb that says, uh, I don't remember it verbatim, but uh, you know, talking about at night. A dog sees a prowler and barks. And all the other bar- dogs start barking because the first one barked. Nobody even knows why they're barking. And, and I, I, I'm not minimizing the challenge of our culture. But our culture, regardless of what the, the, the culture was, it was regular people in the midst I was having a conversation with one of our seniors last night and was telling me about their, uh, my my father died last week. And so we, and I came from an alcoholic home. It was really rough and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I grew up in the seventies and he grew up in the fifties. His story was worse than mine. I thought the fifties were all about leather jackets and Arthur Fonzarelli. And you you know, that's what I thought the fifties were like. People are just as lost today as they were back then you know i just want to say the church if we rather than rather than being culture warriors if we could if we could learn to engage the culture even on their own terms yep oh yes that looks like me and speaks yeah. like me on the elevator or in that waiting room. And I had the most amazing with other people all about my God yeah. there, because of some simple statements that we found where all she's yeah. fighting for our life, we all this women wanting to go home and be mothers again. Yeah. It's, you know, humbling That's powerful. Yeah, yeah, and, and we get so afraid of people, right? I, I remember when we when we were in Detroit. I remember bringing my kids because we lived in the suburbs, and, and uh, uh, Detroit gets a really bad rap. And, and I remember putting my kids in the car and driving down uh, some of the streets in Detroit, and just saying to them, "Okay, guys, these are just houses. Those are just people. You, you know, they operate within their own culture and their own society, but they are uh, they're just like us." And as the church, sometimes we think that, um, yeah, there's a spiritual battle. I, I'm not minimizing that. But it's from inside spiritual battles that people reach out for Christ. And, and, and if we're so afraid, I remember being at Walgreens and, and this dad, it was know, Valentine's Day or something. And and uh, dad was shopping to get his wife something, has his kids. And, and they're like, well, why don't, we a, why don't we get her a Chick-fil-A gift card? And dad says, oh, man, she'd really get upset about that. And my son looks like, who's against Christian chicken? And uh, and there's this whole thing. But what was remarkable to me, isn't it amazing how all of a sudden everybody is absolutely on fire about this social issue? We didn't even know about it yesterday. But now it's like we're being played. We are being played. You know, I I wonder how many of the comments you read online on Twitter and stuff are actual human beings, but not culture shapers. Anyways, we got to go. Acts 16, 16 to 40. Acts 16, um, okay, we got 15 minutes, 16 to 40. Uh, let me just, I'm not gonna read it, it's there. Uh, it's this, I'm just gonna give a, a, a brief synopsis. Uh, basically, um, the, the, the theology of engagement continues on here. I did them out of order on purpose, by the way, um, just cause it made it a little easier. What happens is in the initial days of Paul establishing his mission in Philippi, he's going along and there is uh, this girl that is following them. She's a fortune teller and she's yelling, these are men of God. Listen to me. She's doing it over and over for days. Now, w- was she seeing something and trying to um, underscore their message or w- but whatever it was, Paul gets annoyed and casts devils out of her, okay? Okay. So now this woman, now this girl, she's possessed by, she's a fortune teller. She's telling the future, all that kind of stuff. And she's delivered and her owners are furious, right? Because they've made money on her. She was, she was lining their pockets. And so what happens is that they do this and, uh, and I want to take that, that brief little encounter. And just because of time we're going to fly, what are some things that we see? You know, the story. First of all, if we're going to, ha- this is number four, if we are going to engage our culture, we have to oppose the demonic. We are, though it is a post-Christian America, it does not mean we are post-spiritual. In fact, Generation Z, this this latest generation that's coming up that is as big or bigger than the boomers, are very spiritual. They just don't get organized Christianity. Um, James Emery White. This is what he says: "Um, the world is more open than ever to spiritual things, especially the supernatural. And within this context, Paul and Silas they rely on God to perform uh, spiritual wonders. In order, this is uh, uh, White's phrase: in order to penetrate deeply secular. Minds, you know, I tend not to be a mystical person. I tend to think a little bit more ordered, and I'm always asking God to push me out of my normal uh, comfort zone. Because the truth is, is that if I'm just advocating theology or a philosophy, people are you know, signs and wonders. People are going to wonder where the signs are. People, there are people that are uh, that are, are are angry. They're oppositional. We can't be so quick to say that there is not a spiritual uh, component to this. And I really believe in increasing ways, we've got to pursue the spiritual empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives. And that's why I'm really thankful um, that we are a Pentecostal people around the world. Christianity is a Pentecostal spirituality. It's here. That we get a little insecure about it. It's here that we look at at at, at other uh, more um, mental ways of looking at things. But I just know, I just know that in order for ministry, in order to engage in our society, the spiritual component of prayer and fasting and boldness that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial. If we're not doing that, people are going to listen to what we say, but they're not going to be set free. And I, I think we need to understand that, that we have to have a dependence upon the gifts of the Spirit as the church carries out the Great Commission. Number five, we see this in the girl, is that as the church, we need to actively oppose human exploitation. We need to actively oppose human exploitation. The exorcism of these spirits that harassed this girl um, resulted in conflict with those who were exploiting her in Acts 16.16. 16. Not only did these evil spirits control the girl, but there were those whose fortunes depended on it. And her rescue from this enslavement, It it, it provides insight. Why do you think the world is becoming increasingly hostile toward the church? If people are being set free from bondage... Well, there are, listen, people who are are getting filthy rich on internet pornography, they don't support churches who preach against being enslaved to pornography. But increasingly, we are less confident. I want to be careful how we say these words. Because I don't want to give it the wrong picture. We become increasingly hesitant to call sin what it is, and that's bondage. There is, it's like there's this pendulum, right? And, and it goes from side to side based on the generation. And when I grew up, it was really heavy on the legalism side. And, and, and now it's really heavy on the, on the liberalism side. When, when the New Testament talks about liberty. But liberty is never designed to say, it's okay if you participate in sex, sex outside of marriage. I, I, I have no patience even for the alcohol argument. A person can come and say, well, the Bible doesn't say what All I know is that my family was utterly destroyed by alcohol. My, my three older kids met my father for the very first time while he was brain dead on a gurney last week. And I brought them in and I pointed at them I said, guys, follow Jesus all the days of your life. You know it's ironic because it's my dad that led us to the Lord. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make is this is that the church, if the church wants to gain a hearing in our world. Human sex trafficking. Did you know that though America, according to UNICEF, is like a tier one country that we are, we're, we're one of the best countries in terms of human exploitation. We're also one of the major destinations uh, for people to engage in uh, sex trafficking. Every Every one of the 50 states. Has a sex trafficking problem. That's not only little girls. It's little boys. It's transgender. Whatever it is. It's across the board. We need to get out of this mindset. That our only responsibility is to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Because the gospel includes freedom. And we need to be able. We need to be. that. You know one of the. uh, In in our church. One of the things that we did. Was we opened up a cafe. Like we want to be different. Just like everybody else. And um. But what we decided at that time when we were going to do is that every single dime is going to go to fight human trafficking right through Pro- Project Rescue. And, so, and we've done more than we ever have in that, in that regard. And I'm thankful for that. Um, we need to adopt this theology of engagement in order to save the exploited and the vulnerable, um, including those who are human trafficking, abused children, the poor, the homeless, marginalized uh, groups of people. It, it, can, I, can I just say... That includes people that we look at every single day. We don't know what kind of social bondage they're under. And that includes uh, those with sexual identity issues and all those things. Friends, they are without a theology of engagement. People become the enemy of the church. No human being is an enemy of the church. We have an enemy already. We don't need to. We don't need to add. What we want to do is we want to pray and we want to engage. Number six, um, and this is where it's going to get a little closer to home. Exercise humility before the courts and the government. In in verse 34, let me just touch base with you real quick. Verse 34 uh, says, he brought them in the house and set a meal before him. Um, I think I'm in the wrong chapter. Oh, no, I'm not. Yeah, so he, he goes in, um, the jailer wakes up and, and notices that they are still in the prison and he engages them. And this whole thing comes out where in the morning they find out that Paul's a Roman citizen. They're going to release him and Paul won't leave. But the whole time he's in jail being persecuted for his beliefs. As a citizen, the jailers are breaking the law, right? You, you know that. And so what, what happens is is we know that in engaging in society, we need to be prepared with engaging or uh um experiencing unintended consequences. The owners of the enslaved girl a slave girl uh falsely accuse Paul and Silas for disturbing the peace, they get arrested, but you notice that Paul okay, our time is almost up, Paul does not go on a rampage. He's humble the whole way. And one of the things that I notice, and we're really going quick now, is that uh Paul doesn't risk the advancement of the gospel to exert his rights. But he said he was a citizen. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Paul did not say the gospel is less important than my freedom. In fact, the way he conducted himself, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that they stayed where they were and a whole household of Gentiles got saved? I think that there are too many times as modern believers, American believers... We use the courts to send up trial balloons simply because we're Americans. Now, I understand that there is, uh, that we have constitutional protection and all that kind of stuff, which I absolutely support. It's there for a reason. It's because of those things that we've enjoyed incredible freedom. However, the gospel is more important. And there are times. There are times that as believers, we need to understand that God just may be in it. And how we conduct ourselves under attack with grace, we may lose on CNN. And we may lose on Facebook. But we may win with the jailer. And we may win with the jailer's family. And we have no idea how that's going to impact. And that is a very difficult message here in the West. I understand that. All I'm doing is reporting what I read in here. That Paul remained humble even though he could have early exerted his Ever wonder why he didn't exert his citizenship earlier? It wasn't until later when they wanted to release him that all of a sudden it became an issue. And that brings us to number seven. Is that Paul only exerted his rights, only exerted his citizenship in order to protect the advancement of the gospel. I think Paul knew that if he rolled over and just went away quietly at night, that that would open the door for further persecution of the church as time went on. That if Paul didn't say anything, that the churches that he was trying to establish, there'd be no precedent for, for proper treatment. But one of the things that I, that I just take note of is that Paul was able to, and you know what, to be honest with you, I think that, you know, that Mike Pence, Joy Behar thing comes into play. A public apology would have been really good. It would have been really good because if there's a public apology, there's an acknowledgement that an injustice has been done. And I think that's why you didn't get one. Because we live in a society where, where they're very, very uncomfortable. See, I, I said they. Our culture is very uncomfortable with giving any kind of success or wins um, to the church. But as a believer, I, I'm so thankful for the First Amendment. Being able to assemble and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and all all that kind of stuff. But do you know why I think that the, the freedom of speech is the greatest thing? It's not so I can walk up to somebody and call them a name or so I can stand on a street corner and do whatever I want. The reason why, the, uh, for example, freedom of speech is so important is because it has allowed and continues to allow the gospel to be presented. And do you realize that no matter what comes against the church, we always have the opportunity? Paul didn't have a freedom of speech like we have. Well, Paul did, but the church didn't. But the church still flourished. And so all I'm advocating for, I, I wish we had three hours, but all I'm advocating for is this church, we are winning. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. If we could peek above, if we could put up, go up periscope above the clouds, we would find that Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne. All this is happening down here, but the universe is unfolding as it should, and we are serving God. The church is not against the ropes; it's changing. I I, I did. I recently started doing something I swear I would never do, and that's watching Downton Abbey, and um, watching with my wife. And the reason why it caught my interest is it occurred to me. See, see I'm, I'm Canadian, and so I have a, I, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of royalty. That's why I never liked the show until I realized that that show is about a changing culture. That show is about the upper crust losing power. And the reason why it interests me is, it, is it because it reminds me of what we are going through as a church. It is a changing culture, and we're trying to discover where we fit and so that's why I advocate for this theology of engagement based on Paul's um, ministry in, uh, in, in pagan cultures. So anyways, I appreciate – I'm sorry that it was mostly lecture. We did get a couple questions in, but um, I, I'm going to be around if you want to chat. Our time is, is definitely up.